Welcome to episode one of the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Here you will find interviews with people from the hardcore scene, with a strong focus on Rochester and Buffalo. We'll expand to other regions over time. I'll give you a brief background on myself. My name is Josh Lyons. I have been listening to hardcore and punk since 1995. From 1995 to 1997, I sang in a couple local bands. Around this time, I also started my fanzine, The Right Path. I made 13 issues from 1997 to 2001. From 1999 to 2004, I put out seven releases on my record label, Blatherskite Records. The last few releases were released as Enterprise Records. During these years, I booked around 100 hardcore and punk shows. I also booked a few sporadic shows from 2007 to 2012. This podcast will serve as not only a memory of these experiences, but we will also take a look at the state of the current wave of hardcore bands. New episodes will be released weekly on most platforms where you listen to podcasts. For more information, you can visit EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find links to all of our social media pages, as well as contact information. Feel free to reach out with any feedback or ideas for future episodes. You can also contact us for info on advertising. A portion of this podcast has been provided by Safe Inside Records. Formed in 2016 by two longtime friends, Bert Jenkins of Build to Last and Aaron Cooley of Build to Last and Over My Dead Body, with a shared love for hardcore, Safe Inside Records was born with a desire to give back to the scene by reissuing hardcore staples, as well as to work with young emerging hardcore bands. The duo brought on label manager Thomas Vanderpool of Dying For It after signing his band in 2017. Maintaining a network of friends from bands throughout the scene has helped them in creating a devoted fan base and a signature sound of bands reminiscent of the early 2000s, with emphasis on roster diversity and high-quality vinyl releases. In early 2020, Safe Inside had already announced releases by Fame, Stepping Stone, Chemical Fix, and Sunset. Then in March, the coronavirus outbreak was a serious reality that affected not only the label, but other bands planning to release music. Because of this, they wanted to raise awareness and show support for people who have been affected by the virus by putting out a digital compilation. The comp has unreleased tracks from the previously mentioned bands and others, including New York City's Perfect World and Portland's Dry Socket plus a go-to-loan cover by Rejection Pact. Some of the other bands who have released music already this year are Sissy Fit, Initiate, Crafter, Spirited Away, and Chopping Block. The Bandcamp page is loaded with extras, lyrics, promo videos, links to bands' releases, both physical and digital, and as much info as could be gathered to give the comp some legs. 100% of the proceeds will be donated towards the San Diego United Way's COVID-19 Community Response Fund. The fund is for low-wage workers who need support with utilities and rent and mortgage payments and to help prevent homelessness. Learn more at uwsd.org COVID-19. Why digital? Because all of the money going towards this release will go directly to the cause. All donations will be matched by the label. The comp is pay what you can to reduce barriers of entry to support of this comp, these bands, and most importantly, the cause. Please stay safe inside. For more information on Safe Inside Records, you can visit their website at safeinsiderecords.com, their bandcamp at safeinsiderecords.bandcamp.com, where you can find this digital compilation as well as all other digital releases. You can also find them on Instagram and Twitter under the name Safe Inside Records. I have known Rob Antonucci for 20 years. In the three years leading up to our first official introduction, I saw his bands plenty of times. I ended up seeing them play a lot more after we became friends. 
I even had the privilege of releasing a record for one of his bands. When I first started researching this interview, I thought Rob had been in about eight bands. By the time we conducted the interview, I realized he had been in twice that many. His discography includes a variety of bands from Buffalo and Rochester. Rob is a guitarist, artist, teacher, and most importantly, a father. What follows is part one of our conversation. All right. So how have you been handling the quarantine so far? Um, it's kind of weird. I'm a teacher and uh, we still have to provide content every day. Our principal is having us post different lessons on Monday and then we check in with kids on Friday. But the funny thing is we're <laughs> we're getting emails and, and questions from kids after three o'clock at night or, or all the way into the nighttime, like eight, nine o'clock and all weekend long. Like it's funny, kids kids aren't doing much during the day. They're doing most of it on nights and weekends. So right. we're kind of working all the time, to be honest. But on top of that, I also have two kids. I have a 10 year old and a 13 year old now. She just turned 13. And uh, I have to make sure they're doing their schoolwork, too. And my wife, Mandy, she's a teacher, too. So she's working. So it's parenting, cooking meals, doing all uh, everything I need to do for the family. It's just it's wild. Yeah, it sounds like me. You're, you're a little bit busier now than you were uh, when you were when you were working full time then pretty much. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. totally. And then another another question with that in mind, uh, when I was talking to my sister today, she's a librarian in schools, too. And she said she's had to do a couple lessons through Zoom. Is that something you guys have had to do too, or, or not so much? Uh, at first, our school said no way, because there was a lot of issues going on with it. There was some issue in Fairport with uh, nudity or something, and a friend of mine who is a teacher in Webster, somebody mooned the camera. So word got out, and right away our school is like, nope, we're not doing Zoom, we're not doing any conferences like that. But now they're kind of changing their tune a little bit, and they're going to start rolling that out. But But what I do is... I'll just videotape myself. I still say videotape. That's funny. Uh, I'll video myself and I'll make like a little lesson. So I'll start off be like, hey, everybody, Mr. A here. Uh, today's lesson is going to be blah, blah, blah. And then I go through and I do a whole video on YouTube and send it out to the kids. So that's how I teach. I think the important thing is that you need the kids need to see you and hear you. And if you just send them like something to read over email that just says, hey, kids, read chapter four through six and they're they're not connecting with you. Kids will do the work if they see you and they, they buy in. So right. that's what I've been doing. So your students call you Zoom. I'm sorry, go ahead. The only time we've done Zoom is for like faculty meetings and things like that. That's the only time we use it. That's cool. Uh, so I guess your students call you Mr. A and not Mr. Nooch. <laughs> yeah, the teachers call me Nooch. The kids usually call me Mr. A, but some call me Mr. Antonucci. That's cool. It's it's a mouthful. So they they're lazy. They want to shorten it. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into the to what people mainly came here to, to hear us uh, jabber on about. Uh, let's hear a sure. little bit about your background. Tell people a little bit about Newark, where you grew up, and then uh, give me a rundown about like the first couple bands you played in before you joined Union. Sure. Well, Newark, it, it's funny, because when people hear it, I'm sure the majority of the listeners who are not from the upstate New York area or western New York, they're thinking I'm talking about New Jersey. So my whole life, I've had to tell people, yeah, I grew up in Newark. Newark, New York, and then I have to give them a frame of reference. It's near Rochester. It's between Rochester and Syracuse. So we were 315. We were still kind of closer to, to Syracuse. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Newark, and there were a lot of musicians, a lot of skateboarders. It was kind of a cool um, alternative kind of punk rock town. And uh, honestly, it all starts with a buddy of mine named Scott, who um, one day he goes, hey, we're going to do a band. 
And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And I, I, I didn't play any instrument. I took piano lessons when I was little. So I went back to his house and he said, so I got this guitar and I don't want to play guitar anymore. I want to play the drums. And he had like this giant, beautiful drum set. He goes, I'm going to play drums. You're going to play guitar. I went, okay, I don't play guitar. He goes, now you do. And he, he put the guitar over my head and he started playing the drums and I just started playing along. And we did this after school. This was maybe when I was a sophomore, I guess, end of sophomore year. I just kept playing along with them. And within about two months, I was playing power chords and we were playing Green Day and Nirvana songs. Uh, from there, uh, my buddy Scott and I, who I was talking about, we did a, a band called Lithium and we actually put out a tape and I had to write down one that, oh, 94. So we put out a tape. We were called Lithium because we loved Nirvana songs. And we, we actually put out a cassette tape and we went to a professional studio. So little me as a sophomore recording this song. Uh, so we did that. And then from there, did another band called Rigter. And actually, I need your help on this one. I, I was in a band with uh, this guy named Tim DeMarsh, who had put out a record on, remember Fat Day? Yeah, of course. Oh, a hundred percent breakfast. Sorry to cut you off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, my buddy Tim did a, a solo record called Mulip on his label. He Are we thinking of the right guy? He lived, he went to Harvard. Yeah. I, I actually had that Mulip seven inch when I was a kid. I, I, I've moved to so many different apartments over the years that I don't know what happened to half of my like random seven inches, but I don't have That's that one anymore, but I still have that. Yeah. I still have all my fat day records too. I was just, I just sent a picture to my buddy Ben of all the records the other day. Um, that's we could have funny. a, yeah, we could have a long conversation about fat day. I'm sure. But that's, that's a random coincidence. I, I don't think I ever knew that actually. No. So, so the reason this all ties together and why I'm bringing it up is because my buddy Tim that I'm talking about, he really first started taking me to hardcore shows when I was in high school, I was a, a junior in high school and we played at this place called Java cow in, in Canada. Did you ever go there to see any shows? I didn't go there, but I remember seeing flyers. I think moment of truth and probably initial doubt played yep. a couple shows there. So I definitely heard of the place, so my, but yeah, go ahead. My first real show that I played with this band Rigter uh, was was with Towpath. Remember that band from Buffalo? Oh, yeah. They all wore like uh, Satan masks. Yeah. And they set themselves on fire. True story. It was awesome. <laughs> they were, we loved them. And then the other band that played, oh gosh, their name escapes me. Tim's sister was the singer of that band, and they were from Buffalo as well. Uh, I can't think of the name of the band. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm it. sure Eric Elman would know the name of that band. I'll have to ask him when we yes. get him on here sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So that's was really my introduction into the hardcore scene and and learning about how all that how all that worked. And I and then I uh, was accepted at, at UB and I moved to Buffalo. And when I moved to Buffalo, I just started going to hardcore shows there. And the first hardcore show I remember seeing in Buffalo was in Tonawanda. And it was uh, Converge and Coalesce and Lockjaw played. It was an amazing show. It was, it was just like, it, it went from being this little Java cow show to like everyone just beating the crap out of each other at that show. It was just awesome. And around that same time, I started listening to a lot of like Buffalo hardcore bands. I really got into Despair. I got into Lockjaw, Union. And uh, from there, I started meeting some buddies and uh, we we uh, at first started this other group, uh, which I won't go into too much. And then that same group of guys, we decided, hey, let's do a hardcore band. Let's start playing these shows. And we needed somebody to sing for us. And I was like, all right, we got to get somebody that everybody knows uh, would be a great singer. So uh, 
uh, after talking with Mike Jeffers, who I'll get to a little bit later, he's like, oh, you got to get our buddy Steve Titus. You remember Titus? Oh, yeah. 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 So Titus was uh, the roadie for Union, which I'll get to a little later. And we had Steve sing for our band. And we we started this band called No Way Out, which uh, I actually have a song uh, for No Way Out that, that I can play for you, which is kind of funny. So this is my uh, first band that I did before Union.
Yeah, that's interesting because uh, Steve Titus is probably one of the first people I met uh, when I started going to Buffalo and Rochester hardcore shows. And I actually have a funny memory of him. I went to a show. I think Union played. You were probably already in the band by then. Uh, it was 96. And uh, they, no, they ranked. I wasn't until 97. Were... Okay, so you weren't in the band yet. But they it was like one of those New Year's Eve shows they used to have at, at the Showplace Theater. It was like Despair, Union, Battery. And I forget. I think it was Despair playing when they rang in the New Year. And I didn't even know who Titus was at the time, but he actually ha- happened to be standing next to me in the pit. And literally, right when the New Year rang, I just heard him say out loud, one more year of demonstrating my style. So now, <laughs> yeah, so now my friend Ben and I, every year on New Year's, we text each other that we've been doing that for probably over 10 years now. So that's funny. You were in a band with him. And, you know, you and I probably had a lot of similar encounters that we didn't even know who each other were around that time because we were probably yeah. at like several shows and had never really met until 2000, which, like you've said, you know, we'll get to I'm that sure. in a little while. But um, so, yeah, I guess that leads us. Does that lead us into Union then or? Yeah, it does. And it's kind of funny how, how that turned out, too. Uh, so I went to UB, obviously. And at UB, I lived in the dormitory. It was called uh, Wilkeson Dorm. And in the basement or the bottom floor of Wilkeson, there was this giant, uh, it was like a lecture hall. And nobody really used it at night at all. It was all brick. All the walls were brick. The floors were brick, except for the seats. Obviously, they were plastic. But one day we were uh, walking back from getting a bite to eat and we heard a band playing and I like I recognized what it was. And I went in and Union is just having a band practice in the Wilkeson dorm. <laughs> they were just in there playing. So a group of us went in and we were just kind of sitting down and watching. I was already familiar with the band at that point. And um, this is before No Way Out happened, because this is when I first met Mike Jeffers, who uh, I'll talk about quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, so they finished playing and I went down. I said, hey, you know, I play in a band. Uh, you know, my name's Rob. Uh, Love Union. It's great. And like right away, Mike Jeffers, who's their drummer, Jeffers and I just hit it off right away. We became friends and he's always kind of been like a big brother to me. And we just started hanging out and I would go to shows with him and hang out at his apartment. And uh, we, we became really good friends at that point. So around that same time, um, I, I was also practicing there with my band because if Union can do it, we can do it as well. And what happened was uh, at that point, they they sort of uh, split ways with this guy named Vic. Have you ever met Vic? Yeah, yeah, I know. He yeah. played guitar in Union. Right. Yeah, so so the, uh, Vic left the band, and I'm not sure if it was a kicked out or left kind of situation, but Union needed a guitar player, and uh, Mike came to me right away. He's like, he's, he calls me Bob. He still does to this day. He's uh, yeah. He, he's like, hey Bob. He's like, you gotta you gotta try out for us. I'm like, yeah, right. Like like I have a chance. He goes, no man, I think you can do it. I think you can be in it. So I mean, I was so psyched because I was already a big fan of the band already. So I went up to my dorm room and like played through every single song over and over and over and over. So then I went down. And at this point, they had a new practice space, and this was in Tonawanda. It was this place called Discovery Records, which people listening, I'm, if you're into hardcore in Buffalo, I'm sure you know about Discovery for sure. So I went down there, tried out with the band, a really great group, group of guys in that band. Keith Brown, I was talking to you about the other day. Uh, he's that guy in that picture with you that you posted on Instagram. Remember that? Right, yeah, from that from that Slugfest reunion, yeah. Yep. Keith Brown, great guy. He was a singer. Uh, ben Kumpf was a bass player, and Scott Sprigg was the other guitar player. He also played in Buried Alive. You probably know him, too. Right, yep. Yep, so Sprigg played guitar. And, you know, I went in thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I have a chance. So I, I went in, plugged in. Uh, Mike clicked in the sticks, and 
I just started playing with the band. Sounded great. I knew all the songs. I knew what parts Vic played. So I kind of took that over and I know they auditioned a couple other people. And maybe when uh, you talk to Mike, he can, he can tell you who, who else they auditioned, but um, I ended up getting the gig. It was really cool. And this was in, uh, so right at this point, it's winter of 97, I think. Uh, right. So like, er, so like early, early, I'm sorry to cut you off. So like early 1997, no. you're talking then, right? Or, yeah. or like late 1990. Yeah. Early. Okay. Yeah. So, and you may know this because your brain works better than I do because of such, so many different bands I've been in, but this, I remember clearly my first show that I ever played with union is crazy. Like it, I was so nervous. We played a show at the Showplace theater with sick of it all and AFI. I don't know if you remember okay, that I show. I didn't go to that show, but I know it was like right around April Fool's Day, 1997, because people still talk about it to this day. There you um, go. I, yeah, I was only 16 at the time, so it was, it was not quite as easy for me to travel out of town as much. Um, I think I went to like two or three out of town shows that first year, and then finally we found a couple of people that had their license and could give us rides, because I didn't get my license until I was like uh, 36 or 37. So, and I'm okay. what 39 now. Um, I actually have that on so, video. Yeah. I have that show on video somewhere. I'll, I'll, I can send it to you at some point, but it was just crazy. I went from, you know, playing in front of like 16 kids to that show playing in front of like a thousand kids at Showplace Theater. I was scared out of my mind. It was crazy. But, yeah. And um, then not, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then not long after that, you guys ended up playing the Warp Tour that summer too, right? Yes. Was that 97? Yeah. yeah so I thought, cause I remember seeing yep. that too. I, yeah. I forgot about that actually. I didn't, yeah. I wrote down some yeah. Notes so that was thing just so I would remember everything. But right. the, the funny story about that, when we played the Warp Tour, it was in Buffalo, right along the, the river there. It was a great show. And we were looking at the lineup of who was playing when. It was, and we played like the side stage. At that point, there was there was a side stage, there was a main stage, and then there was a skate ramp. So we were walking around and we met Steve Caballero, who's like one of my idols for skateboarding. We got our picture taken with him. And then we went over to the side stage to play our set. And the band that opened for us was Sugar Ray. Huh. Sugar uh, Ray. I Just Want to Fly. Remember that band? Yeah. Yeah. But that was before just... that was before all that, though, right? Oh, like yeah. that was oh, when yeah. they were. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like the summer after is when they absolutely blew up. They were huge. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that show we have on video, too. I think our buddy Aaron McPherson took video of that for us, too. And that was cool. That was a great opportunity to be able yeah, to play my main... uh, the Warp Tour. My main memory from that that time you guys played is I, I'm sure you remember the Syracuse Sluggers, the guys with the jerseys that would yep. uh, come to shows and, and kind of act tough or whatever. There were, of course, at the Warp Tour, you didn't have a lot of hardcore and punk kids. You had a, a big mix of like fringe kids, mall kids, yep. and just random, you know. And there was a kid who was like mosh and weird or whatever. And one of the Sluggers, of course, just went, went right up to him and just started pounding him or whatever, you know. And, and that was just a common thing back then. You would always see like just, just random violence and stuff. And, and I was talking yeah. to somebody about that recently that we got lucky. If you think about it, all the years in Rochester, like I can only think of like maybe two fights out of all those shows. I mean, granted one of them was a pretty big fight, but otherwise, was that the you know, we've had, show? uh, well that that's one of them. And then the show I that there. I booked where there was a big, a big riot too. Yeah. Both those shows, uh, had some pretty big fights. And other than that, you know, you didn't really see a lot. And I think Buffalo kind of got lucky too. Cause after the late '90s, and a lot of it was with the skinheads too, and the and the straight edge crews. Yeah. You know, yep. nothing nothing wrong with nothing wrong with straight edge, but when you have the gang mentality, it's kind of like, you know, I think it pushes more people away than brings them in at that point. Yeah. Um, but staying on topic with Union, so uh, did you guys end up doing like a lot of weekend touring or out of town, or was that mostly like like Buffalo Rochester type of shows for you guys? 
No, I mean, we would play like Erie and we'd play New Jersey and that that kind of northeast area. We never really did a big tour or anything. I was only mm-hmm. in the band for a little less than a year. It wasn't a long time, but it was a great experience. I learned so much. I mean, I went from just being in these little bands to being in this established group that was already on Ferret Records. So uh, we started playing around a little bit and then we started writing some songs. There were a couple already written and then I ended up writing one for them. And we did a seven inch on Ferret called You Fell For It. And that was, I think, late 1997. And uh, yeah, shortly after that, the band broke up, which was kind of a bummer, but uh, definitely one of my favorite bands I've ever been in and such an awesome experience. And, you know, just those guys being established, taking a chance on me, just being this 18 year old kid and putting me in a band, you know, I owe a lot to Mike Jeffers. I, I really appreciate him doing that. Yeah, no, Union's definitely a, a classic, classic Buffalo band, in my opinion. We'll have to definitely get one of those tracks uh, on this podcast. So I think that would take us up to the band Voice Killer at that point then, right? Uh, Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of hazy on what band comes where. Uh, but I can talk about that one a little bit, too. That one, that one's kind of, you'll get a kick out of this, and a lot of people who know me will probably laugh. Uh, but at this point, we started Voice Killer, and Voice Killer, ironically, had Vic from Union that left Union, came and played with me and Mike Jeffers from Union, and we got our buddy Justin Schubring to play bass, and we started this band called Voice Killer, which kind of had the vibe of Sick of It All, sort of. Uh, really cool band. Uh, originally, we had this guy named Aaron McPherson singing, and that didn't work out, so shortly after, I started singing. And it's, I think, if I go back and pay attention to what records i've done i think it's the only time i've really sang for a band so i i think i sent you one of those songs so definitely let, let's listen to one of those songs
and what I was telling you is interesting about this is going through your discography. I was like, man, I'm, I remember a lot of these bands, but you and I didn't really know each other back then. And like my first couple of years going to shows, I was more of just like a spectator who would like put out a fanzine occasionally and would just go and like mosh and stuff. I didn't really start getting to know people like from bands and whatnot until I was like 19 or 20, which would have obviously been like around 2000, 2001, you know? Right. When I and moved so, back to Rochester. Yeah. That's exactly the exact time when I started doing more. And I, like, I don't think I even really knew who you were per se until you moved back to Rochester, which is interesting because I was at a lot of your shows and I had right. the voice killer demo and I was just, I never really put two and two together until you told me that. So a, a good question about that. Um, do you, does you ever like kind of wish that you would have ended up like singing in a band full time or do you prefer to play the guitar? Um, I, it's hard to say. Uh, I enjoy ta- talking. I'm a big talker. I talk all day long. I talk at school and I mean, that's what I'm known for. I talk a ton and I, I could see myself doing that on stage, but I just think I ramble too much. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wasn't great at it. I was okay at it. I just, I always preferred playing guitar. I've played bass for a couple bands. I'll talk about that a little bit later. I played bass and break of dawn, but I, I don't know. I've always just loved playing guitar. It's always mm-hmm. been my thing. I don't know. Singing was fun. I just wanted to try it out. So you may have the original demo or maybe you have the demo with me on it. So we originally had the one with Aaron on vocals and then we re-recorded it with me on vocals. So okay. I'm not sure which one you have, but uh, yeah. I sent I sent you the one song with with definitely with me on vocals. Right. Yeah, I got a lot of stuff packed away. Like like I said, I moved around so many times and we've been in this house for almost 10 years. And, I, and now I'm going through my, my boxes and I'm like, man, I never unpacked any of this stuff. Voice killer was pretty short lived then, right? And I think yeah. that brings us again. The timeline might be a little hazy here, but I think that would bring us into Gray in Between, which is another yes. band I forgot about. Yeah. And again, didn't realize that you were in that band. Now, going back and listening to that when you sent me the track, uh, for lack of a better word, I think you would agree that was probably the most emo band you've you've played in then, right? Oh yeah, 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 by far, by far. I mean, now, it was what, one what, of two bands I think that actually have singing, like actual melodic singing, but besides Marathon. Uh, but gray in between again was was Vic that was, he left Union and when he left Union he started gray in between and they were a three piece for a long time so it was Vic and Chris Romice on drums and Eric Polovich on bass and after Union broke up and I, like I said it, it was all these bands kind of happened around the same time and they asked me to join as a fourth guitar player and it was it was a lot of fun I actually learned a lot playing from Vic I don't know if you've ever seen him play guitar but he's definitely one of the best guitar players I've ever played with he's just an incredible guitar player so I learned so much working from him
It was great. It was a lot of fun. And we played, what was the name of that place at RIT? Was it The Haunt or something? What was it called? Oh, no, that uh, was The Claw. The Claw. The Claw. The Haunts in Ithaca, yeah. right? Yeah, The Haunts in Ithaca, yep. So that was, yeah, no, uh, the cl- yeah, was one of the first shows I remember playing in Rochester. And that's when I ran into John 25, who I knew from high school, because uh, I knew him from going to Java Cow shows. And I saw Brian Van Etten, who actually uh, I was best friends with his brother growing up, and I ran back into him. It was nice seeing him again. So were you at that show that they did at uh, at the Claude RIT when uh, Graham Batista- All right, so this is... So this is a little trivia, too. I think I still have that flyer somewhere. If I don't, we're going to get Greg Benoit to post it for us. Um, I'm like 99.9% sure that that was the first Stanfast show, too, really? that you played. I'm pretty sure, because that was that was definitely a claw show, and Channel 3 was the band that Brian Vanette was in at the yeah. time. Kenton, yes. Kenton, was, Kenton was literally like, Kenton Parker was like 12 or 13, played guitar for them. Um, right. I, forget what the, I forget what their singer's name was, but he was a good dude, too. And they played a lot of those like Fairport, um, like Teen Center and, and Rec Center type shows, um, and they were really popular at the time. And 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 I, as you well know, like Fairport as a, as a suburb of Rochester, and they really had a strong like group of kids that would come out to shows. And it all started with them, like Rory and Brian. I, Rory was in a band before called Longshot, but I don't think they really did too much. But once they started doing Standfast and Channel Three, which I think was kind of short lived that really like opened up our scene big time. And like pretty much the whole time I was booking shows after that, you know, you could always expect, I mean, it was divided. Like we had a punk scene at vertex, which is more like Webster kids, right. but for like hardcore for hardcore for many years, it was, it was like 75% Fairport kids. And then the rest of them were all college kids, you know? So that, that's interesting though. I, I, I never put that together. I remember, I think I saw that flyer somewhere. I'll have to dig it out of my archives and see. And again, if I don't have it, I know Greg has it cause he's got pretty much everything on that Instagram. Now, since so, I lived in um, Buffalo at that point, I didn't really know too much about the origin of Stanfast and all those bands. At some point, I'd, I'd love it if you could uh, do something that focuses on the history of all those early bands. That would be really fascinating because I came in right in the middle of, during like the, the peak of Stanfast. That's when I moved back to Rochester. But but there's a period in the middle here where uh, I, I don't know if I overlapped doing Grain Between or this next band, but... Jeffers and I decided, hey, let's do something serious. Let's tour. Let's do a band that's really going to uh, make an impact. And uh, Jeffers and Justin, who is in Voice Killer, we wanted to do something hardcore, but we wanted to have some like metal parts to it and some uh, some leads. So we decided to do Dead to the World at that point. And we added our buddy Vinny Gargiulo. Remember Vinny? He lived in Rochester oh, yeah. for a while. Yep. Yep. So he came to every union show and he was Vic's best friend. So he's actually from Hornell, I think. And then he moved to Buffalo to go to UB also. So I knew him. He played guitar. Him and I started playing and we hit it off. So uh, he we added him and we needed a singer. And this is interesting. I don't know if you know this or not. So at this time, and this is probably 98, there was a huge influx of kids that moved to Rochester from Michigan. I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah, No, I don't think I did, actually. Big group of kids decided, and I can't remember exactly why, but they were all from Alpena, Michigan, maybe one or two kids from Detroit. They all said, we're moving to Buffalo. We love Buffalo hardcore. We're moving there. So uh, we ended up getting this guy, Kyle, to sing. He had these, like, yellow dreads. We saw him at a show, and and Mike and I saw him walk by, and we're like, let's get that kid to sing for our band. (laughs) We didn't really (laughs) even know him, so we went up. We're like, hey, man, you want to sing for our band? So we had him come down and try out. 
he did a great job. So he was in the band for a while. And then uh, we got this guy named uh, Josh Wachowski. And people probably know him now as Josh Woods. Because also, funny uh, side note, is that he was a contestant on Ink Master. You remember that show? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still going. Season one, Josh was, I don't know, he made it pretty far. He didn't win He didn't win the uh, the whole thing of Ink Master, but he was on that show. And he ended up being kind of our long-term singer for Dead to the World. We had a rotation of different bass players. It was kind of funny. It was kind of like Spinal Tap. Uh, but the one hmm. that I think we had the most, who spent the most amount of time, was this kid named Chris Kubiak. He was this punk rock guy who was like this punk singer, guitar player. And uh, we brought him along to play bass. And then my high school buddy, uh, Jonathan Benny. This is funny. So we didn't have a bass player in Buffalo. And Jonathan lived in Albany. So we ended up playing a, almost every single weekend out in uh, in New England. And I'll get to why in a minute. But we would literally pick him up on the way in Albany. We would drive to Albany, pick up Jonathan, go play our three shows, and then we would drop him off and then we'd drive back home. Hmm. So the start of Dead to the World, the official start was around 98. And we started around the same time as Every Time I Die. So it's kind of crazy to think about how long Every Time I Die has been around. And it's, it's yeah. amazing to me that they're still going and they're still relevant and they're bigger than ever and they're doing awesome. So, you know, props mm -hmm. to those dudes. Uh, but we played a lot of shows together when we started, um, sometimes together, sometimes separate. But at this point, uh, Buffalo Hardcore was, you know, us and Buried Alive and Every Time I Die for the most part. There were a couple other bands. Kid Gorgeous was awesome. They they were around that same time. You remember those bands? Yep. And yeah. so what we did is we recorded a demo. And uh, I think it was three or four songs on our demo. And uh, Mike knows everybody. Jeffers is for those of you who don't know Jeffers, he's he's amazing. I mean, he can talk all day. It's he's an awesome guy. He's like I said, he's like my big brother. So Jeffers knows everyone. He's originally from New York. So talks talks like he's from New York still, even though he's been living in Buffalo forever. Uh, knows everybody in the New York hardcore scene, but and everybody in Buffalo as well. So Mike's like, all right, we're gonna get on a label. So we started sending stuff out to all these different labels. And one person that got back to us uh, who really liked it was uh, Jamie Hatebreed. Do you know this part of the story or no? Uh, I know some of it, but just tell everybody who doesn't who doesn't know it, obviously. Because it's, sure. it's so. So Jamie from Hatebreed, uh, this was around the time when they put out the Satisfaction record. He had a, a label called Stillborn Records, and uh, Stillborn decided to do an album with us. It ended up taking a long time to come out, but I think. Stillborn at that time, I think it was like Death Threat, Hoods. I think they did something for another victim. Do you remember yep. any other bands that were on there around that point? I think those a little the, a little bit later, but yeah, that's that's around that time. Those were the bands that he had for the most part. Yeah, but I, I know some of the bands that came out like you know like three or four years later too, obviously. But this is you know for that era that 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 sounds about right though. So at this time, I'm I'm still going to UB. I'm living in Buffalo. And I'm still going to classes full time. So I'm going to classes Monday through Thursday. I'm an art student. I'm going to school for illustration. And we'd be on the road playing shows every weekend. So we would leave Friday morning because I would only have classes Monday through Thursday. I made my schedule that way. And we'd leave Friday morning and we would drive to Connecticut. We'd play Connecticut Friday. We'd play New York City on Saturday. Sunday, we'd play Massachusetts or New Jersey or somewhere. And then we'd drive home through the night. I'm telling you, Jeffers is a warrior. 
we would leave the venue at like one in the morning and Mike would drive through the night, stay awake the entire time and then drop me off in time for class. Jeez. <laughs> so, so I'd wake up and go to class. We did that for like two years. That's just what we did. We were just road warriors. I mean, it was funny. You look at it as yes, we're touring a lot, but it's still not full time. I mean, we didn't like give up what we were doing. I think Mike, Mike at this point was already teaching because he's a he's a teacher as well. So we we didn't just drop everything and and do like a full time tours, but we just we did weekends all the way through. So um, yeah, that's kind of how that went down with with Dead to the World. We did a couple records. We did a split with Kid Gorgeous. Our best song we did was for a comp on Red Star Records out of Canada. I'm sure you remember that label. Yep. I remember the comp you're talking about, I think, too, because it was littered with good bands from that era, around, mainly from this area, too. Another weird fact that that's kind of strange, we, we recorded an EP, and uh, you remember Steve Sindoni? He ended up singing for Breathe the Resist. You remember that guy? Okay, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know the name offhand, but I, I, know, I'm, I can picture him when you, when you mentioned that, though, yeah. So he's from Buffalo originally. And he was working, he was doing a label. I can't remember what the name of the label was, but Steve loved Dead to the World. And he says, I want to do a record for you guys. And it never ended up happening. So we have a couple songs that never came out and a Kiss cover. Shocker. Huh. Yeah. Kiss, <laughs> me and Jeffers, Kiss is our favorite band. Jeffers got me into Kiss. And uh, yeah, you're. I'm sure you're laughing because you know what a big Kiss fan I yeah. am. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Jeffers got me into Kiss. I'll give him credit for that one. Um so we did a kiss cover we did love gun on that and it never came out so that's that's sort of what uh dead to the world did
another another great band. I was really happy to be to be part of that. And then um, uh, Vinny and I left the band around the time when I was graduating from UB and uh, moved back to Rochester. So I think at that point I was going to shows in both Buffalo and Rochester for a while. Yeah. And I think that's around the time when I started hanging out with you. Right. I just want to ask one follow up to that before we uh, switch over to Rochester. And if you don't if you don't remember anything, it's not the end of the world. But do you have do you have any really funny Steve Titus and or Mike Jeffers (laughs) stories from that Eric? I know Titus roadied for for Dead of the World as well. So (laughs) I have both. So my uh, my I have two good Steve Titus stories. Uh, One of them, he almost slugged me in the face. And I don't know how I got him (laughs) to not punch me. But we were in the van and uh, we're definitely in the Connecticut area. And uh, we stopped for McDonald's and uh, he, had, he was eating a burger or something. It ketchup was everywhere, was all over his face. <laughs> and uh, I got a thing of chicken McNuggets. So I'm, I'm eating my chicken McNuggets and like Steve's talking about something. Everyone's looking at Steve, except for Mike, who's driving. Everyone's looking at Steve and the ketchup just gobs all over his face. <laughs> so we all look over at Steve and I take my chicken McNugget and I dip it into the ketchup on his face and I eat it. <laughs> He wanted to slug me so bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Steve roadied for Union, and Steve also roadied for Dead of the World. That was one of the trips he came on with us. Um, but <laughs> so many good Jeffers stories. I mean, there could be an entire podcast of Jeffers. I mean, the guy's amazing. I mean, he we we drove this old beat up van. I don't even remember what kind it is because I know nothing about cars. Uh, so the van would constantly be breaking down and we'd be standing on the side of the road and Mike would get just get down under the van and like fix it with like a cloth and like uh, a, a Swiss army knife. He just fix the thing. I remember driving <laughs> down the road and like the van, like the middle part of the van, the console would like catch on fire. True story. And we got so desensitized to it that Vinnie Gargiulo would pop up in the back and go van's on fire again and then like mike would look over and pull over and take care of the fire it was like it was insane one time we were playing up in canada and like i forgot what the part of the van is mike's listening to this cursing me out right now because he knows what it's called and i can't remember so we like pulled over to the side of the road and he like fixed it with like one of steve titus's socks or something and made the van go and got us home like mike mike could fix anything so at one point we're on tour with shy halud and one king down, and I think we're in Indianapolis, I think. And we're driving down the road and we're following one king down. And Mike and I are in the front seat and we pulled over earlier to do, uh, Mike was fixing something under the hood and I was helping him. I didn't know what I was doing though, I have no idea. So we're driving down the road and then out of nowhere, the hood flies open while we're driving down the, the freeway. And Mike and I look at each other, we're like, ah! and then we stick our heads out the window. <laughs> As we're driving down the road and we're beeping and we're trying to get one King down's attention so we can pull over and like fix the hood. So like, we, it was hilarious. That sounds uh, like a mixture of uh Tommy boy and Ace Ventura pretty much there. Yes. You guys were living out. Um, it was real life. <laughs> so now like you, we were alluding to, we're, we're getting back into Rochester now. So yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you moved back here. I, I don't know if you moved back here around then, but you started, you know, being more, uh, you know, in the Rochester area around 2000, I feel like. Um, yeah, and the reason that happened actually is Vinny Minervino, who ended up um, being in Roses Are Red, he got an apartment with Brian Allerton, and that's kind of the the intro to our segue between you and I. Mm-hmm. 
and they got an apartment together and uh, Vinny was actually going to UB at the time and he decided to transfer. I think he transferred to MCC and he said, hey, I'm I said to him that I'm looking for an apartment. And he said, oh, me and my buddy Brian are going to get an apartment. You should move in with us. So we moved into this place on Rucker Street and we called it the apt. Yeah. And uh, we, we had a couple uh, rotating members. We had this guy named Red Tim. And then uh, we got our greatest roommate of all. And who would that be, <laughs> Mr. Josh Lyons? Yeah. So a little a little quick little funny tidbit about that before we segue into the Rochester scene. Um, I lived in that little nook with you guys for one, maybe three months at most. Now, if you fast forward like uh, six or seven years to my real hard partying uh, substance abuse years, I had a buddy, Luke Holly, who lived at that exact same apartment on Rucker Street. No way. Yeah, the dude. Part? Oh, the upper part, dude. We ended up we ended up going, we were at like Lux or one of those places partying, and we took the after hours back there. And I'm like, wait, is this where, where is this really this place? And I legit. You've been losing your mind. Well, I ended up crashing there that night, too. And it was one of those nights where you're like, there's no one living in that, in that little, uh, for people who are listening, you can't really picture it, but there was a living room. And there was like a separate little nook in the living room. And Vinny initially lived there. And then when Red yep. Tim moved out, I took that spot. So, of right. course, it's like the end of the night and I'm still drunk. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to sleep on the floor in the exact same spot where I lived. And my buddy Luke <laughs> just looks amazing. at me like, like, okay, cool, dude, or whatever. Like, he didn't care, you know. But I'm like, to me, it was like, you know, it was like living out Full my hardcore circle. years again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so we all that. And, and I think there was an apartment that John and them had right down the street. That was like the hub of like Rochester hardcore for like a year or two, yeah. that whole, that whole area. So, but right. when I, when you remember the name of that street was, but they lived, I think it was by Arkhamage and, uh, no, no, it was right behind what's that place called show world. Yeah. You know, I grew up right. I literally grew up Amherst Amherst is the name of the street. I was going to say, yeah. I grew up so, so close to that area. I have to, I still know that, know that neighborhood like back of my hand, but, um, so, so now we're talking about Rochester and, yeah. and when you, when you started playing in bands here, the music kind of changed pretty drastically. Uh, when you, when you did, well, go ahead. That was on purpose too. You know, uh, the the thing is, and to circle back to the thing about, about Newark is um, when I started going back to to shows in in Rochester, I reconnected with a bunch of buddies I knew from high school, not, not the same ones I used to play in bands with, but it was really cool to me that a bunch of guys I knew really well were playing in this band called the Chuds. So I know, you know, all this, but I'm just trying to explain to everybody that the the Chuds are, uh, a very unique, fun and funny band, but mm-hmm. they were super smart and they were musically proficient. It's they're so hard to describe because they're so unique and they're they're just so cool. So at that point, I think the band kind of dissolved, and I can't really remember why. But uh, I know Brady, who was in the band, he he wasn't in it anymore. And I started talking to those guys, and I I wanted to do something different, and I didn't want to do something that was super metal or or hardcore like Dead of the World was. And at that point, I was really into Glassjaw, who a lot of people didn't like. They were kind of like one of those love them or hate them bands. But I love the fact that they were crazy and like super melodic at the same time. So I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to write differently. I wanted to learn how to play guitar for real instead of just learning like these low chords and like these like metal noodles that I play really high. And the guys from the Chuds were like, yeah, let's do something. I mean, we've known each other our whole lives. So it was just like a perfect fit. Because we were just like, hey, like Matt and I went to church together when we were little. And I used to go skateboarding with uh, with Jason Medoro, who was our singer. We used to skateboard in middle school together. So it was just a real natural fit to start uh, the next band called Building on Fire. 
which uh, I can probably talk a lot about as well. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I want to add in a couple things real quick. First of all, yeah, speaking, sure. of, speaking of Jason Maduro, I would put him up there with Rory as probably the best vocalist of that, that whole 10 year era in this, in this area, you know, uh, his, his, that. his presence, his, I mean, his lyrics were, were very original too, but yeah, just definitely. his, just his presence and the way he, he sang or screamed or everyone to call it was interesting. And one yeah. thing that I hadn't really uh, put in my notes for this was you mentioned Glassjaw. It's funny that you would say you were trying to be in a band that sounded like that. I personally never got into the band Glassjaw. I saw them play a couple of times, but they just weren't really a band that I liked. But as you well know, Building on Fire was one of my favorite local bands at that time and and ever probably. So it's interesting. Um, but yeah, so what I wanted to ask about Building on Fire, I guess, was who wrote the music for Building on Fire? And did the music end up sounding, going back to the glass jar part, I guess, did it sound like you had planned it to? Uh, not really. I mean, everybody contributed as far as the music goes. I mean, it's, it's kind of how it goes with a lot of my bands is I'll come in with, with like two or three parts to a song. I'll, I'll come in with like the meat of it. And it really kind of happens organically from there. So it, a lot of it was Tyler and I, and then Matt would write some stuff and Sean would write some stuff. And then, uh, you know, occasionally Jason would pipe up and be like, Hey, what if you guys went like, dun, 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 like he didn't really, he didn't play an instrument. So we would kind of like sing it. And it's, it's funny. Cause I had this idea of what it was going to be and sort of the, the, the crazy interest that like, uh, Tyler, for example, was really into Orchid and some of those crazy bands. I, I think kind of the hex called us a cacophony of noise was a cool way to put it of everyone's different interests coming together and into this one band. So to answer that question, no, it, it didn't turn out what I wanted it to be initially, but it ended up being something really cool and really unique. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted something that was like nothing else that was going on at the time. And, and I, I thought that was really cool how it ended up. <laughs> Yeah. 
Now, was this around the time you started doing a lot of design work for bands and obviously my flyers? And tell yeah. me about that. Tell me about that experience. And do you still do a lot of that kind of stuff? Or yeah, oh, I do. I do actually have a side business right now. It's called Nuchburger Designs, which I know is kind of a goofy name, but people remember it. So I, what I do a lot of now, and then I'll kind of get back into what I did, is I do a lot of like uh, banners for schools. Like a, they do like stadium wraps where you go to a football game and like all the chain link fencing is is wrapped with like these vinyl banners that'll say like Geneseo Blue Devils or uh, you know, Fairport Raiders. So I do a lot of that now. But around this time when I moved back to Rochester, I had my illustration degree, which is essentially a, a degree to you know illustrate stories and songs and things. But I, I really, I, I taught myself Photoshop at UB. But when I got back to Rochester, I, I really dove in headfirst and wanted to really learn everything there is to know about Photoshop. And a great opportunity to get my stuff out there right away was getting to know you. And I, I remember telling you, I was like, hey, I'd love to do flyers for you. And you're like, yeah, sure. And you're probably thinking, oh, great. He'll do it for free. Who cares? You know? <laughs> So you're like, hey, I got a show coming up. I don't know. You probably let me in for free, and that was my my payment, probably, right? I think it was. Yeah, that was that sounds I don't think about I right. Charged you? I, no, I, I think I wouldn't have done that. I think the only thing I might have paid you for is is uh like when because you designed some of the CDs for me too. Uh, yeah, but even even that, my memory's hazy on that too. For you know, throw. you know, yeah, exactly. I, I don't even know. I guess it doesn't matter. That stuff doesn't matter to me too much. Right. Um, I mean, it does now that I have a family. I, right. I, you know, I want to get paid for the work I do. But at that point, I didn't I didn't really care. I just enjoyed doing it. So, I mean, around that time, uh, John 25 was doing a lot of flyers and doing a lot of design work. And honestly, it, he was a huge influence. I mean, just the way that he designed flyers and worked with type was it was amazing. I mean, I, I just love John. And I think we both kind of pushed each other to create awesome artwork and layouts and flyers. And the two of us, I mean, we got along great and we both like mutually liked each other's artwork, but I think John came out with an awesome flyer and I'm like, Oh, that's amazing. I got to do a cool one. And then I would come out with a really cool one and then John's would be better and then mine would be better. So mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool that the dynamic that John and I had of really creating awesome art into, into a flyer and the other people that I really liked at that time, I really liked Aaron Turner, uh, who did all the ISIS and all the Hydra head layouts, botch layout. His stuff was incredible. And then around that time, I remember listening to this record with you. I remember you getting Jane Doe and putting it on in our apartment. And yeah. you and I listening to the whole thing and like our minds were blown. Were like, mm -hmm. This record is amazing. Still one of my favorite hardcore records. Yeah. But when you look at the layout, yep. I've never seen artwork that amazing. Right. And the cool thing about Jake Bannon is what I tried to do too is not only did I do a cool layout, but I wanted to create the artwork for it. So I wanted to use my own artwork. So for example, the record that you ended up putting out for us for Building on Fire was called One Plus One Equals Blue. That cover was actually a, a charcoal drawing I did in college. So I took that artwork, put that on the cover. Even though it's not exactly a Jake Bannon, it's definitely influenced by him and influenced by Aaron Turner. So if you, I saw you posted the, the layout on Instagram. I hadn't looked at the layout for that in years. When I look at it, I go, yeah, this, these are definitely influenced by what Aaron Turner did for his layouts as well. So shout out to those guys and, and John 25 for doing such a great job. And I just love doing it. I mean, I, I did the artwork for almost all my bands. Uh, most recently is really the only time I've kind of loosened the reins and say, okay, let's let someone else do the actual artwork for it. Uh, John McCaig uh, is a buddy of mine. He did art for Longest War. 
Uh, my wife actually did the artwork for the new Achilles CD, which is absolutely amazing. And another Rochester hardcore kid, Sean Carney, did the photos for Hospice. So I want to give those guys a little bit of a shout out too, because it's all kind of related to my graphic design work. So um, yeah, of course. I'm I'm trying to think of how many flyers I ended up doing for you. I mean, oh, I sent you a bunch of them recently. Yeah, no, I I have Probably... I, I have a lot of stuff archived, like I said, and I. I Again, moving through all all the apartments, I ended up losing some stuff. So I don't know, you know, but you you I would say you probably designed upwards of fifty or more for me in a like yeah. a two year period. So I mean, there was but you got to think send there was everything I have. Yeah, there was a little while there where you know we had a show every week pretty much. I mean, because you got to think. Yeah. Uh, John and I did the bulk of the shows here at that period in time, but occasionally Rory would book a show. Uh, Pat Stefano started doing shows a couple years later. Yep. Like we, and then we when we had that space on Lyle too. I think it was. Golia pointed right. out to me on Instagram recently that there was like a one or two month period in 2003, which we're getting a little bit ahead of, ahead of the topic here. But, you know, around that time, we were just oversaturated with with shows by then, man. We had like right. like like literally like two per week. And then and then there was times where the girl I was dating at the time, she would do the show for me because I had to work like I couldn't even get out of work because I had so many shows booked. And that's right. when I was get, right. getting into like restaurant management and stuff like that. And when you're a manager in a restaurant you can only take off so many days. You can't take off like, you know, like two or three days per week. So, you know, it got to a point where we were just, you know, we were just doing too much. Uh, but one more quick now, building so on fire. Speaking, One second. No, go ahead. Sure. I have a quick story that is, I, I still tell the story to this day. And I, I don't know if you remember this or not. Uh, I'm not sure if you were living with us at this point, but this was nine 11. Were you living with me on nine 11? Oh yeah. No, I know exactly where you're going with this, but go ahead. And, and yeah. And, yep. So was this stash fest? Is that what the flyer was? Yeah. For? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So, so I, I created a flyer for Stash Fest, which is a, a fest that Josh had been doing for a couple of years. And on the flyer, I used the artwork from Def Leppard's Pyromania album. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can picture that in your head, what it is, is it's a picture of a building and you're looking up at it and there's a target and there's like smoke, almost like part of the building blew up or was destroyed. And the thought in my head was, OK, it's a building on fire, building on fires, playing the show. I'll put it on the flyer. So I made the flyer. I think you and I printed them out. We went all over town. And this, yeah. I think, was September 9th or September 10th. Yeah, it was, it was literally right before it. Yeah, right before it. Yep. Yeah. So 9-11 uh, happens and the planes hit the Twin Towers. And you and I look at each other and we're like, we just put out yep. 100 flyers with a picture of a mm -hmm. building that has been destroyed. And yeah. we went out and, and we, we grabbed them all. Remembered everywhere we yeah. went, we took all the flyers back. Do you remember that? Well, well, the funny thing is, I I was thinking about it the other day too because this was like, I mean, cell phones were around, but I don't think I had one yet. And and I that day that that happened, I went to um, Bags Unlimited over on uh, Canal Street to pick up some bags for a seven inch I had coming out. And I remember I I, I had kind of heard a little bit about the towers going down before I left the apartment, but I didn't really know what exactly was going on yet. And when I'm at Bags Unlimited, they're they're talking about it on the radio, and and the lady looked at me and she's like, "Do you know what's going on?" And I was like, "I do now." You know, like, and I remember, like, I didn't have a phone to call or text you with, but I'm like, going back to the apartment. That's all I kept thinking is we got to get rid of those flyers. And I think yep. when when I got there, like, you looked at me, we didn't have to say anything to each other. We are, we both knew, like, we got it, we got to switch this immediately. You know what I mean? Yep. And it was one of those things where nobody ever really said anything because I think we got rid of them in time. But yep. I think some people would have, especially like now, because more people are more like, um, they get they get they get you know upset about that kind of stuff. I feel like, and I think that yep. something like that happened now, they would be pissed at us. You know. 
Oh, but then I think we post it online and it'd be yeah. all over Twitter. And... Yeah. But we didn't do it on purpose. Like it was like the craziest Nostradamus moment. Like, yeah, I didn't mean anything wrong by it. My whole point was that the building was on fire and we play in a band called building on fire. That was the whole idea. But man, I'm glad we got rid of those. And then you and I, I remember we came back up to the apartment and all of us were sitting there and uh, my girlfriend at the time was my wife. Now I remember we were just sitting there like, it was crazy just watching the TV, but yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was a wild time. Yeah, that was really crazy, and yeah, it's just it's just, it's just interesting, just like you're saying, like the the weird coincidence of of making a flyer like that and not not knowing what's going to happen. Obviously, I, I can't imagine anything like that's ever happened since, or probably will, you know, no. with something like that. But it was just like you know, but luckily, you know, we had the opportunity to to make good make good with that. So one more quick building on fire question, then I guess because we're still in that era. Um, was 2001 the only Billy on Fire tour? And then did you guys, do you remember playing an official last show for Billy on Fire? Because I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain today and I'm like, I don't remember there being a last Billy on Fire show no. like where you guys like were breaking up or whatever. I'll answer that one first. I think the last show that we ended up playing, and if anyone from Billy on Fire is listening, they may know a, a different answer, but I think it ended up being that same show that was the last Avram and the last breaking project show, which ended up being a DVD that somebody put out. And there's footage on that DVD that I watched recently where we played our set and the last song, I don't know if you remember this or not, Tyler and Matt switched instruments. So Matt got on the drums and Tyler got on the bass. And then somebody from the audience, I can't remember who, got up and said, I can play this song. And they played the Poltergeist Whispers song. And yeah. it was just, it was a total disaster. Who was it? That, I don't remember who did it, but I, I can vaguely remember what you're talking about now. Because that was at that, that warehouse space that I was referencing on Lyle yeah. Live, I think, was that yes. show. So. And I think that ended up being the last show. Because what happened there was shortly after that, I remember getting an email from Matt and, and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to be in the band anymore. And I get it. Like the band at that point had been getting progressively heavier and heavier. And that's obviously because of me. I, I was into heavier music. But I think to answer your first question with, with the tour, uh, the one big tour that we did is that we did that with Stanfast. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, quick backstory on that. I, I hadn't sure. really booked. I hadn't really booked too many tours. I had tried to do a couple weekends. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, you know, I've done all these favors for all these bands now. Let's cash them in and we'll book a full U.S. tour for, for my friends, you know, thinking right. it'd be no problem, no trouble at all to do, obviously, you know. Well, come to like, come to find out like two months before the tour, I get an email from Hex and he's like, how many shows do you have confirmed out of the U.S.? And I was like, well, I have Chicago and I think I have two in California and maybe one in Texas. And, and we, we were just talking to each other. We're like, you know, there's all this space in between. You got to cover too, right? <laughs> and I, there, there might have been Minneapolis too. Now I think about it, but either way, you know what I mean. Yeah, we had we nothing. That. Yeah, we we had nothing in between, and and you'll be able to dive deeper into this obviously in a second. Yeah. But it, he ends up helping me get a couple more shows. But even like with the connections he had, like we still didn't really book that successful of a tour. I know you guys ended up having fun after <laughs> after what we're going to get into in a second happened, but right, um, right. you know I still feel kind of bad for that. And I, I wish it would have turned yeah. out better, obviously. But you know, it's it still made a funny for a really story. good movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that that premiere that we had for that or whatever. But um, so, what's your memory from that? I guess uh, aside from the obvious with Stan Fest Van uh, breaking down before the first show even happened. Yeah, so we got to Ohio and Stan Fest Van broke down, and they ended up just leaving it there. And I, I think we like spray painted up the side of it and just left yeah. it. Yeah, and I think they had to get a rental car and they headed back home. 
But yeah. that tour, it was, let's see, how many people? We had one, two, three, four, five. Let's see, there's five of us in the band, plus Brady, plus Ryan Hex. Okay, so we had seven guys in a minivan. So think about that. <laughs> yeah. That's one, two in the front, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> plus equipment, All too, obviously. That, yeah. yeah, plus equipment. Yeah. And we didn't have a trailer. All we had was one of those, like, Sears carrier things on the top with the snail on it i forgot what brand those were we had our mm -hmm. clothes up there and all we could bring was like guitar heads and uh guitars and uh i think we had tyler's like symbols or something and that's all we could bring because it's all we could fit so we ended up doing this u.s tour with big gaps in the middle and i remember a lot of the time we were just sleeping at rest areas and but uh, the kind of the thing we were talking about earlier, but people are wondering about the movie and what, what that was, is that Matt, our bass player, was a film student at RIT, and he filmed the whole thing. It was like a reality show, this whole documentary of what this tour was like. And at times it was fantastic, and at times it was really low and really difficult to be out on the road with nowhere to go and nowhere to sleep and no money. So it was really hard, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn you learn a lot being on the road and how to survive. I'll put it that way. But it wasn't the greatest tour. But, hey, I'm looking at it with glass half full. We got to do a U.S. tour. So that was great. So, uh, you know, I guess if you look at it that way, I appreciate what you did. I appreciate what Axe did. Uh, but so, yeah, that that they call it the Boffumentary. Mm -hmm. And that boffumentary, it's it's available. It's on YouTube somewhere. I think it's on my station somewhere on YouTube. But if, if anyone's interested, I'll send you the link and they can uh, contact you about watching it. It's fantastic. Like yeah. Matt Wirtz did a great job. He got an A on it. Uh, it was it was amazing. He did a great job. They they did. Did you go to the premiere that was at RIT when they showed yeah. it in the theater? Yeah. yeah, it was really cool. It was really special. Yeah, my, my favorite memory of that, aside from, you know, finally not being as pissed about the fact that we were going back from Ohio that day, is um, so we all had to take that U-Haul that you referenced back. We, we, we The town right. we broke down in is called Elyria, Ohio. It's right outside Cleveland. And we were, like, at a mall all day. And right. so we, we ended up getting a U-Haul. And so John 25, Rory, and I sat in the front of the U-Haul. And then the rest of Stanfast, Licky, Brian Van Etten, and Oleg all rode in the back of the U-Haul with one of those closed oh truck things the entire way back. And <laughs> I think we stopped. I think we stopped maybe two or three times. Like, we would tell them to knock on the U-Haul to let us know if they had to, to pee or whatever, you know? And we stopped, at, <laughs> we stopped at a rest stop in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I ended up picking up, like, uh, like, a Deep Purple tape and, like, one other tape. And we were literally just cranking Deep Purple the rest of the way home, you know? <laughs> This concludes part one of our interview with Rob Antonucci. Rob will be back for part two at the end of May. During our interview, you heard the following songs by Rob's bands. No Way Out by No Way Out. Foundation by Voice Killer. Safety and Spite by Gray in Between. End It Now by Dead of the World. And Lake by Building on Fire. A portion of this episode is brought to you by the Sore Ear Collective. Sore Ear Collective is a Rochester, New York-based DIY label established in late 2015, with releases ranging from bands like Denver's Low Faith and Screamo Heavy Hitter's Portrayal of Guilt to Rochester's own Coming Down and The Weight We Carry. Sore Ear Collective currently has two releases up for pre-order, the new Buffalo-based band P.S. Your Dead's Demo Tape and the industrial powerhouse Trace Amounts Obsessive Diagnosis 7-inch, respectively the label's 17th and 18th release. 
For more info on releases, check out soarearcollective.bigcartel.com or their Instagram page at soarearcollective. The next episode will feature an interview with Mike Jeffers. Mike has been a fixture on the Buffalo hardcore scene for over 25 years. During that time, he has played drums for many bands, such as Union, Dead to the World, Herod, Face the Panic, Longest War, Juggernaut, and plenty of others. Tune in next week to see what Mike has to say. All right, that wraps up the first episode of the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for checking this out, spreading the word, and sending me feedback. Special thanks to Rob Antonucci, Ben Keefe, Jared at Sawyer Collective, Bert, Aaron, and Thomas at Safe Inside Records, and Dave Palermo. Extra special thanks to my life partner, Sarah Winicky, and our son, Hendrix. Without your patience, none of this would be possible, and I love you both.